The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... A, Y, B, what are you doing? C, you could die. And D, like, please don't, basically, were the reactions. And, you know, right up until, right from when I signed up, right up until the day before I went, my dad was like, you can still not, you, you don't have to do it. You can still say no. And like, they were just, they were desperate for me not to do it. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? And welcome back to the Insulone Podcast. As always, it is my pleasure to have your time and your ears for this hour or hour and a half. And let me just say, you are very lucky that you've tuned into this podcast because this episode specifically, well, all of the podcasts, but this one is unbelievable. It's, that's the only word I can use for it. Unbelievable. So you are very lucky that you've tuned into this episode. So the guest that I have today is Charlotte Hurst, who is from the UK and living in the UK, running her own chiropractor practice for people and animals. Charlotte has a massively sporting background. She's played hockey, netball, tennis, swimming, athletics, horse riding, which she's competed in professionally and is now on judging panels for major shows in the UK. She has lived in France, the Middle East, Ireland for a short spell, and was employed by the London Organizing Committee for the 2012 Olympics. There's a few things Charlotte hasn't done. At the age of 28, Charlotte was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and admittedly, she didn't manage it as well as she feels she should have. But since then, she's done marathons, ultramarathons, triathlons, Ironman races. And today we spoke about her biggest physical challenge that she's ever done to date, which is a 250 kilometer ultramarathon through a desert. Yes, you heard that correctly. <laughs> Diabetes has taught Charlotte discipline, strength, intuition, resilience, independence, organization, planning, strategic thinking, problem solving, self-care, and the ultimate art 
of saying no. And in this episode, you will hear about all of these things in such fascinating and passionate detail. And I know it's just going to blow your mind. So please enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation and hearing from Charlotte herself. Charlotte, I'm laughing because I have, as I said to you, a lot of different things that I want to ask you in relation to this race specifically. But a quote from you that stood out to me and that I'd love to read out now before getting into you doing an absolutely insane challenge and race is my diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis have both stopped me from doing things previously and as a vow to myself getting it under control paying attention to correct nutrition and being as physically fit as possible has really helped me get it all to a place where it won't stop me again can you give me a bit of detail charlotte around how you went from essentially your diabetes stopping you doing something to you then doing a 250k race through a desert how does that look <laughs> that I mean, yeah that was quite a journey uh from the very beginning of that to the very end of it um so i was like can i take you right back to the beginning so um i was diagnosed in 2008 at the age of 28 um I was doing triathlons at the time. I was really fit. So I just entered a, an Ironman triathlon um, and then and then got hit with this diagnosis that absolutely knocked the wind out of me. And I mean, <clears throat> I hadn't, I had no knowledge. I mean, I had a, uh, a clinical knowledge about diabetes because of work. I'm a chiropractor and we've studied it in clinic medicine um, and patients that, that, that deal with it and have dealt with it, uh, but not on any kind of scale as, as what you experience when you're personally going through it. So, uh, and none of my family have had it uh, or been diagnosed with it. So it really, it really knocked me for six. And back in 2008, all the specialists were like, stop sport, stop everything. Uh, you can come back to it, but you've got to do a complete reset, like get your head around it. I mean, I get it. Like you, you know, it, there's so much to take on board when it comes to um, the, di- you know, when, when you're diagnosed, uh, so I took three months off and then when you're that fit and you've put in that much work to get to that level of fitness, uh, taking three months off is like you're starting again, is what it feels like anyway. Uh, mm. So I never kind of got back to that level uh, in the triathlons. Um, and essentially, I was really angry, really frustrated, really bitter about it um, and kind of just thought, well, you know what? I'll just keep going. And and I I sort of, I didn't let it stop me doing anything, but I didn't manage it. So, I did, or I didn't manage it properly. So I kind of got by with a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Um, no one really picked up on those because my um, HU1AC was like fine because I was having the, the real lows and the real highs. And back then when technology isn't what it is now, I kind of thought, oh, I'm sort of nailing, sort of nailing this. Um, and then I, I moved away. So I lived in France for a couple of years and then I lived in Southern Ireland for six years, actually. And, um, it's only when I came back to the UK five years ago that I did the Daphne course that they've been trying to get me on for like 12 years that I've been rejecting. (laughs) Um, so I did the Daphne course and that actually transformed, that was my starting, uh, sort of 
base, if you like. Um, I then developed a really, really great specialist team so uh, around me. So the nurse that led the Daphne course has, is now my diabetes specialist nurse. Uh, through her, I then got um, in with the consultants at Redditch Hospital rather than kind of Kidderminster and Worcester, which are my immediate local ones. Um, and fantastic consultants and fantastic teams, teams that, you know, the, the nurses that listen to me, it's a conversation, it's a two-way dialogue, consultants that are like, actually, you're doing really, really well, but have you just thought about tweaking this rather than my previous experience with consultants where they've just been looking at a computer screen and don't even turn and look at you in the eye and go, how are you? Or are you okay? Mm. I just, you know, I'd had, I'd had a, a rough few years, let's put it that way. Um, so then I could start to think about kind of my um, fitness and nutrition again. And then when COVID happened, um, just before COVID, I was due to, I got a place in the London Marathon. Um, so I had picked up the running again and I was running. Um, and then obviously that got postponed and then postponed again to October 21, which was sort of when the world awakened again, wasn't it? Uh so I did all the training at home. And then just before lockdown, I got on the Libra. So all the timing was amazing. I got that time to kind of have a complete kind of um, able to look at all the aspects of my health, all the aspects of my nutrition that because work stops, I had the time to invest in myself. And it was just the absolute most, I mean, it was a blessing in disguise. At the, at the time, we all panicked that we couldn't work and do all the rest of it and, and myself included. But in hindsight now and looking back it was that was the turning point for me um I was able to invest in myself and I kind of came out of lockdown uh, just a, a completely new person in the way that I managed the diabetes um you know that my approach to nutrition my approach to I'd always carried on with a fitness and and an activity to a degree through the years but not to the extent that kind of um I am now or or have been recently so I did London Marathon in 21 and had a brilliant, brilliant time, loved it. Um, and then that was my where my love for running kind of um, properly started. Uh, I then just booked three days with a friend and we we ran across Hadrian's Wall. We, I, we both couldn't get any more days off. So we literally had to do it in three days uh, just <laughs> for fun with a with a backpack on a light pack and um, I just thought what a great way to see the world. And it was a part of the country that I hadn't been to before. Uh, and had an amazing time and then I had a, a couple of months off from the running after that and then went to the running show in January and got got talking to um, Kevin Weber who wrote a book Dead Man Running and he um, he's done all these amazing races across the world and he's been diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer and, and still has it and still is under treatment and is on chemo and you know he will be um, until the end um, but a really inspiring chap and he's like why don't you do the MDS and the NDS came on my radar, uh, Marathon des Sables, sorry, came on my radar back in my 20s when I was doing triathlons. And I was like, one day I want to do that. So that was pre-diabetes. Um, and I, I kind of followed it every year, sort of, you know, on social media and on YouTube and um, this, that and the other, kind of watching it, looking at these athletes thinking, oh, my God, that's amazing. Uh, never, I, I mean, it was always something I wanted to do, but never really thought I would get the opportunity I had mentioned it just before COVID to my consultants at the QE and with the ex-TODs, exercise and type 1 diabetes um, kind of management over there. Uh, and they were like, well, there's nothing to stop you doing it, but why don't you just go and run a few marathons first and do this, that and the other? And they kind of almost tried to put me off. Well, they did put me off, really. Um, <laughs> anyway. 
cut a long story short, uh, I did the NDS this year and I did it in April and uh, I fulfilled my 20 year dream nearly. And uh, it's amazing. Mm. And it's because of diabetes that I think I've done it, um, which sounds weird. I know. Charlotte you've actually you've actually answered you've already answered loads of questions that I was going to ask you but for for like already that is even personally to me like incredibly inspiring because obviously living as a type 1 diabetic myself I understand how difficult like just day-to-day life can be and then on top of these incredible endurance events like physically mentally and blood sugar i know how difficult they can be not to mds extent yet hopefully but for for somebody who doesn't know what the mds actually is can you explain it in a bit more detail just so we really understand what you actually went through yeah so um it's so easy to get caught up in the MDS community where everyone knows what it's talking about. But yeah, you forget that it's kind of, um, it's not on everyone's radar. So uh, Marathon des Sables, it's run by a French company and Marathon des Sables means Marathon of the Sands. And it's basically a self-supported seven-day race across the Sahara Desert. Uh, You carry everything you need on your back for the entire seven days, apart from they give you water at uh, checkpoints, which is rationed. Uh, so you have to be really careful with the water. Uh, and also they supply a kind of large open-sided bivouac tent that's like goatskin tent uh, that you share with seven or eight other people. Um, that is the only thing they give you. They have medics there, which are absolutely brilliant. And like you can see them, like the feet were the most common problem and the, and the biggest issue for everybody out there because of the blisters and the heat and the... Oh, my God, it was awful. Um they call them the Doc Trotters. So that tent is always open and uh, they are amazing. There's a whole team of volunteer medics in there that uh, just do a brilliant job, but they've got cardiologists, endocrinologists, they've got a dentist that goes. Um, so that side of it is is amazing, um, but you are literally out there on your own. Um, if worst case scenario, you know, you need help, then it's there. Uh, but it's, yeah, essentially you're carrying all the food. Um, I had to sign off. I, they had to actually, uh, look, I had to, um, disclose the diabetes to them. And then I had to send my running CV to them. And then they were like, okay, we'll let you do it. Uh, I didn't really realize that, um, there was a question mark over it, but they were like, we'll let you do it, but you have to, you're in charge. We can't hold the medication in a fridge for you. We can't, you know, we can't hold any backup for you um essentially it's your problem you've got to deal with it uh which I kind of knew anyway I did know anyway um so medication obviously keeping that at the right temperature was was one of the biggest challenges um taking backup and reserve stuff how much do you take it's risk versus rewards because of the weight that you're carrying on your back so minimum weight that you have to carry is six kilograms and there's a minimum amount of calories you've got to have per day Um, And then some essential items like um, a compass, a signaling mirror, an anti-venom pump, um, head torch. uh, Off the top of my head, I think that's pretty much it. Um, And then obviously like sleeping bag and then all your food. So the food ended up being kind of dehydrated stuff like expedition food. Um, Pretty disgusting. 
I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's actually got a lot better. Um, <laughs> but then also, like with the diabetes, you know, you, you know, like I am the world's worst. I have boxes of gels everywhere. I have like glucose tablets. I have cartons of orange juice just in case I have a hypo everywhere. So having to funnel that down into like, right, what is the bare minimum that I need? I mean, it was terrifying. Mm. Uh, but I did a lot of practice. I did a lot of ultras where I was totally self-sufficient, uh, carrying everything I needed on my back and not using things like the check, you know, the aid stations that were in the race. Um, I mean, the preparation was a whole, whole another thing and all, and all part of the journey. I mean, it was incredible, but out there in the deserts. Yeah. So, uh, seven days camping. Um, and then, uh, and this year, what made it even more challenging is we got, we prepared for 40 degree temperatures and we got hit with like mid fifties. And, uh, so it was just insane. Um, how hot it was. Yeah. Okay. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information there to try and digest Charlotte, but yeah. I just want to go back briefly because a couple of things stood out to me. Number one, it's 250 K through a desert which in itself is unbelievable. But you mentioned anti-venom pumps, obviously rationing water, rationing food, making sure your medication and insulin doesn't go bad with mid 50 degree heat, blisters on your feet, completely self-sufficient. I suppose the question a lot of people might be wondering is why is this something you wanted to do? <laughs> uh, I think everyone that knows me and everyone that came across me said the same. Um, like it's the ultimate challenge, right? And and mm. so as far as a record show, I'm the first female British type one diabetic to do it. There's been a few um, male type, uh, like a handful of male type one diabetics. Um, I just so I want so there's a few things there's a few caveats to that um, to this so basically I want to prove to myself that I can do it uh, I love a challenge I love putting my body through it I love discovering stuff about what my body can do um, you know I work in in private healthcare like anything about kind of physiology and the way the body works just I just love it. Uh, I kind of into a little bit of the, um, I wouldn't say I'm a biohacker, but I do kind of, I'm on the fringes, let's put it that way, uh, trying to optimize, you know, my health as much as possible, as well as helping my patients. So there's that aspect of it, a very, you know, personal goal. Secondly, I kind of wanted to prove that um, diabetes doesn't need to stop us from doing anything. And this was like, this is the toughest thing you can do. Or one of the tough, it's not the toughest thing you can do. It's deemed the toughest foot race on earth. I don't know if it is anymore. Um, it's certainly a challenge, right? So it, it, if I could do this as an ordinary person without any extra funding, without any extra help, you know, I just, it's what I can get on the NHS. We are so lucky with the NHS in this country. You know, the same technology as anyone else can get their hands on. I got no special treatment whatsoever. If I could do it, then what's stopping anyone else from, you know, being able to put a pair of trainers on and get outside and, you know, go for a walk, whatever, get active, get moving. And if I could just inspire one diabetic to do that, then that's half that, you know, that's half my job done. I just, um, it just doesn't need to stop us. And so 
And then also I was raising funds for JDRF UK, um, which uh, I don't know if you're I'm sure you're aware of the charity. They're, they're, so, they're so invested in A, finding a cure, but B, you know, all the research and um, spreading awareness and um, all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, so that was that was an important aspect of it as well. It's absolutely going to be inspiring a lot of diabetics, even just listening to this. And the fact that you've done it, Charlotte, is just blowing my mind personally, to say the least. But can I ask you, what did the people around you or what did the people close to you feel or how did they feel about you doing this race? So I, um, I live on my own. I've got, I'm very close to, uh, geographically to my parents and I've got three sisters and, um, they've got their families. Um, mom and dad were worried sick and I didn't realize how worried they were until I got a card the morning I left and they'd written, they'd both written in this card about how they just wanted it to be over and they wanted me to be safe and sound. And whilst they wanted me to enjoy it, I mean, I couldn't wait to go. I was so excited you know, no one else <laughs> felt that excitement. They just felt, <laughs> they just felt concern and worry. And I think half of it was, is, you know, for 18 months, I'd, I'd surrounded myself with people that had either done the MDS or were doing the MDS. I had a coach uh, who, he did it actually this year as well for his 16th time. Like he knew exactly oh, wow. what was, you know, although he's not diabetic and not necessarily dealt with diabetics before, you know, he knew what the race was going to throw up in every type of situation. So he was so valuable to me. Um, but because I'd surrounded myself with it and almost become desensitized to the enormity of the challenge, you know, you forget that kind of family and mum and dad and, and the sister that are looking in, into it from the sort of outskirts. Uh, they're like, oh, crap. Like, A, why? B, what are you doing? C, you could die. And D, like, please don't, basically, were the reactions. Um and, you know, right up until, right from when I signed up, right up until the day before I went, my dad was like, you can still not, you, you don't have to do it. You can still say no. And like, they were just, they were desperate for me not to do it. But I think had they known more about it and had they know, and had they been submersed in the kind of world that I'd been submersed in, I think that they would have worried less. Um, but still also, they don't deal with the diabetes. They just see the heart, you know, the, 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 probably the difficult and the most challenging aspects of the diabetes and they don't see anything else. They don't, you know, like I say, I live on my own. They don't see my day-to-day management of it. That mum didn't realize that all the ultras that I've run up until this point, I've been totally self-sufficient. I'd taken my own gels. I didn't rely on the, like I say, didn't rely on the aid, um, the aid stations, she didn't have a clue about any of that. And so when I was talking to her about kind of, oh my God, I've got to skim my weight down in my backpack um, because I've got to carry basically a kilo extra because of the medications, because of battery. I had to take a battery power pack to charge like my insulin driver. We can come on to how I manage my diabetes if you like in a minute. But um, mm. basically my kit weighed extra than what Joe Bloggs next door to me was going to be weighing in at because they didn't have diabetes so that meant I had to skim down on some other stuff. And so, you know, I was looking at the nutrition and I basically took 2000 calories a day. I took the minimum. But what I did take was uh, two spare gels a day in case of a hypo, which on the first day, that's quite scary. But if you can get through the first day without a hypo, then I've got four gels for that day. I wasn't throwing anything away. Whereas, uh, so my backpack wasn't actually getting a lot lighter through the week like everyone else's was 
either. So they could like chuck food away that they weren't using or chuck bits away that they weren't using. And I basically had to save onto all of it until the last day, just in case. <laughs> and that was my plan. Mm. So my plan was really, fo- you know, day one and day two, I had to nail it. And, and so that meant it did mean running my blood slightly higher than they should have been. Um, but, but that was the plan. I went in with that, with that plan and that expectation. And that is exactly what happened. I had a few, I had a, a massive problem on day two. We can come on to that as well, if you like, but, um, but that all went to plan. And so then I got through kind of the first couple of days and then I had like, you know, four spare gels and I, I felt like then I was on a downhill slope. Hmm. It's, it's definitely something that anybody listening to this will think like, what a, what an unbelievable physical and mental challenge to do. But Myself and anyone listening who is living with type 1 diabetes just completely understands and is probably quite stressed out about the added layer of complexity that type 1 diabetes inevitably brings to that type of challenge. And you touched on, Charlotte, that because you were surrounded by people for 12, 18 months who had done the MDS quite frequently or consistently, you would almost become desensitized to the severity of it or the potential severity of it, particularly with type 1 diabetes. Do you feel as if because you were around people so much, that desensitized you to that severity? Where, like in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing 250K through a desert, which is a phenomenal amount of movement, which in itself is likely going to drive my blood sugar down naturally. I'm in the heat, which will probably also act to bring my blood sugar down quite consistently. I'm also dehydrated and probably lacking more food than I should have, which can also bring my blood sugar down quite consistently. And as we know, I'm sure, the severity of a low blood sugar can be quite severe quite immediately. Were you, do you feel as if you were like fully clued into the potential of what could happen or was it almost like, because I'm so excited about this race and this is something I've always wanted to do, did you almost push that to the side a bit more? I think I'm asking that question correctly. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. It's such uh, an interesting point because I think there's probably a bit of both in that. So I, I didn't leave a stone unturned when it came to the preparation. So I, I was in the heat chamber at Coventry University. They used me as a study. Uh, so I was able to go, um, I didn't actually leave my medication there, but I was able to go and, um, run in 40 degree heat on a treadmill they were able to, they were, they were testing my blood every 15 minutes. They were, um, reading my, um, breathing. So they could say they could, um, I think they're measuring carbon dioxide, uh, levels. So they could say, they could talk, give me a lot of information about my metabolic rate, how many calories I was burning, my sweat rate, um, my salt, um, the amount of salt I sweat in my sweat. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I got so much information uh, and then also off the back of that, then she did a heat acclimation program for me that I did at, I did at home. So I went and I did um, a test in a treadmill at the beginning of the acclimation program, which is about three weeks before going out to the desert. 
And then I spent that entire next two weeks doing every day I did two hours or something in the heat. So I have a pop-up sauna tent. Um, I've got a treadmill. So basically I was running on the treadmill in a sauna suit. I was sat in the sauna in a sauna suit. I was sat in a 40 degree bath for an hour. I was trying to do two hours. So one, two of those things every day. And so, and, and then through that, I mean, I'd, I'd done a test kind of um, a test 10 days, but earlier in the year anyway, with that. So I knew that heat initially spikes my blood glucose levels and then it drops. So you become more sensitive to insulin, um, but it, you do get that kind of rise with the heat. Um, what I didn't know is with that heat being consistent over seven days, how would that sit? So I knew like for two hours of a day, what my bloods are doing in that heat, but like extended, I didn't know. So there was, a, there was a question mark with that. Um, I knew that, so with the running, I knew what back to back, you know, 30 milers did to my bloods. Um, and actually my body's really used to that. So that was less of an issue. What I find hardest and what I've found hardest with it was like the week before the rest, the week before the race being a rest week, like that just played havoc with my blood glucose levels because suddenly I stopped doing stuff. So I became quite insulin resistant the week before or more insulin resistant. And then, and then when you have a recovery week afterwards and like the first two days of the recovery week, like your bloods are just through the floor for the first two days. And then suddenly they're like through the, you know, so that's where like, I find it really challenging with basal rates and, um, I use a, an Omnipod um, pump. So I almost find the either side of the race the hard bit, not not the race itself, because um, I'm, really good at, I'm really good at running and doing ultras like fasted with no insulin on board apart from basal. And then what I tend to do, what I tend to do is fuel the insulin. So I basically take on, you know, small amounts of carbohydrates in a very, very trickle dose, um in the background kind of quite regularly uh and that all that does is it keeps the blood sugars up basically so i'm almost feeding the feeding the insulin rather than feeding myself which some would uh criticize about kind of you know am i getting able to perform at my best with that which probably i'm not but i'm able to get it done um and uh yeah and so tweaking tweaking the blood sugars like that I used to kind of drop basils and especially like second day into an ultra and third day into an ultra, drop the basils, drop the basils. And actually I now find that I run better if I feed that insulin um, because I'm not, I'm not particularly good at running, uh, eating when I'm running. And this makes me eat a little bit, little and often when I'm running. So it, it, it's kind of just flipping the, the mental switch a little bit. Um, so yeah, in answer to your question, Yes, it, it it does pull the bloods down, down, down. You know, you're in the heat. You you're running a more, you know, a marathon a day for seven days, pretty much. A double marathon on the one day. There's a long stage on the Wednesday that was 57 miles. Um, then you have a rest day on Thursday, and then it's a marathon on Friday, and then you leave the desert on Saturday with a charity 10k walk, which is some idea, someone's idea of a sick joke. <laughs> but um so uh so it it, i mean it's grueling but when you're in it it it, it's just it's it's not i mean it is a big deal it is a big deal but i feel like i was prepared for it uh certainly mentally i mean there is the element that it was hugely exciting i was just going to get out there and i'll get through it uh you know you you park it a little bit knowing that you've got to do this for the week in order to survive 
you know, and, and you have your, your various um, sort of little routines. But um, essentially, it all went to plan, apart from my Dexcom failing in the heat. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. Oh, no, that's, that's presumably the terrible thing that happened on day two, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, I, I'd never run in a desert before. And on day one, I felt great, ran it. Everyone was like being hit with a hit. So it was the highest dropout, second highest dropout um, rate in the history of the race. Uh, and it was because of the heat. So 30% of the runners didn't finish that started. Um, and it, and it was like, there were two air helicopters pretty much on the go the whole time, lifting people off the top of Jebels and off the top of dunes and getting them back to safety. And, you know, I saw some sites that I wasn't prepared for people having kind of, uh, you know, being resuscitated and stuff like that. No one died. Everyone is fine. But it, it does like, that's where you kind of think, oh my God, what am I doing? This is like a really fine line between something that's really exciting and challenging and something that's totally insane and life-threatening. And when it's happening kind of, you know, in the tent next door, I saw someone have a seizure from the heat and then he blocked his airways, became unresponsive. And actually one of the girls from our tent is a trained nurse and she ran over and she, she resuscitated him uh, through chest compressions and uh, mouth to mouth. And then uh, the medics arrived with the defib. He, he became responsive and then went unresponsive again then they managed to get him going again. He's still in ho- he's still in hospital in Paris, as far as I'm aware. But when you see that happen, kind of, you know, less than 20 meters away, and I just was like, I, I can't. That was that was suddenly when it hit me, and that was the end of day one. Uh, and I was like, oh, what am I doing? This is terrifying. And then I just went really into it. I was like, right, I've got my plan. I just need to focus on my plan. And and it does make you quite selfish, but, but you have to be. Like, it's literally like survival. <clears throat> Excuse me. But so on day two, so I ran quite fast by all accounts on day one. It didn't feel, it wasn't fast because it's in the desert and it was in the heat and it was, it felt very slow. <laughs> but anyway, what I didn't do was um, rehydrate properly enough overnight. Um, I didn't take, I, I had salt tablets we had, I had a salt plan, a salt rehydration plan for 40 degree heat. Uh, that totally gets thrown out the window when it gets over 50 degrees. And it just all the, I had to double it basically, but I didn't realize at the time. So on Tuesday, uh, it was a slightly, uh, on the Monday, sorry, the second day, it was a slightly shorter distance, but it was really technical climbing. Uh, so totally different to day one. I got to the bottom of the third Jebel, which is about seven kilometers from home. And I was actually throwing up, crossing the checkpoint um, through dehydration. Uh, at the same time, my Dexcom alarm went off on my phone as in high. Uh, so the medics kind of saw me throwing up, saw this high and they were like, you're in DKA. And I was like, I actually don't think I am. And I got out my blood testing kit and I was like, look, I'm like 13. It's perfect for about to climb up a Jebel. And they're like, no, it's finished for you. So basically, they then tried to give me an sickness pill, which I threw straight back up. So then they put me on a drip uh, and basically held me at this checkpoint for three hours. I went on, I was on three drips. And then the chief medical officer came up to me and he went, it's finished for you. We're air ambulancing you back to the camp. Uh, I can't let you go out there. You're in DKA. And I was like, but I'm not. I'm just dehydrated. Uh, but French doctor responsible for everybody out there. He didn't want to hear a bar of it. Um, so I got pretty upset uh 
And I just lay there watching everyone going through, thinking, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is over. And then by pure luck, uh, the two race directors uh, walked in front of the tent. I don't even know why they were there at that checkpoint. But I managed to get one of them their attention. And I explained to him, I was like, look, Fred, the chief medical officer, he is just not listening to me. I can speak French. Um, I was like, I, if he wants to decide to take me out of the race after he knows the information, so be it. But he's got to listen to what you know, what, what, what's going on. He's got to listen to what, what I need to say. So the guy was like, well, explain it to me. So I explained it all to him. I was like, it's just a failure with the sensor. It's not, a, it's not DKA. Um, I can prove it. So I've got the blood testing kit. This is what it's doing. So then he went off and spoke to Fred and, and then eventually Fred came back and said, look, okay, we're going to finish this third drip. If your blood's under 15, we'll let you keep going. So, and, it, and I knew it was, it was fine. Uh, so I, oh my God, I was so relieved. So after three hours of being on a drip, uh, and quite well rested, I kind of, <laughs> I flew up the side of this jebel. Um, and then in a panic, like there was a, there was a cutoff. So I had three hours to get home, which seven K you go, that's no problem. Uh, but there was, um, a mountain the size of Snowdon to get up and over the other side. And I knew there was a dune section before the finish line. So it's just like, I just don't know how long it's going to take me. Uh, so I literally uh, got up to the top of the devil as quick as I could uh, and then got back. And I got back with um, an hour to spare. And then they extended the cutoff anyway, because someone had to get behind me, had to get airlifted off the top of the devil. Actually, it was Maria who's in my tent, the nurse that revived this chap. She went into hypothermic shock at the top of the Jebel. And uh, I mean, her core temperature went above 40 degrees, which is critical. Uh, so she was airlifted off. But what that meant was a lot of people were held back. So they extended the cutoffs anyway. And um, yeah, I got safely back. But then so I got back from day two and I was like, right, I've got to change this. I need to double my salt intake. I need to change my sensor. I need to drink more water I need to eat more because at that point I hadn't really eaten very much because you just don't want to in the heat like I love food I'm I'm the I have the biggest appetite in the world I love good food uh one of my main concerns about going to the desert was I was going to be starving hungry all week but um you just don't want to eat in that heat so I had to change that's where I kind of flipped the switch and I was like right I've got to you know every time I drink so I had an alarm that went off on my watch every 15 minutes it was like drink so with that I was like drink have a fruit pastel, have a bit of gel, check my heart rate, make sure it's not escalating because that's an indication of core temperature, you know, and then and and then check the blood glucose and, and all the rest of it. So then develop this kind of routine and a plan. And that's what actually works for the rest of the week then. But it took that that crisis on the second day for me to kind of turn things around and, and learn how to do it properly in the desert. I mean, it was, it was eye opening. <laughs> it sounds, it's pretty clear that like you stopping just simply wasn't an option. You're seeing people pass out, be resuscitated, have seizures, be airlifted. You have the chief medical officer saying you're in DKA, you, you shouldn't and you can't continue, but you you get angry and upset and frustrated by it. Charlotte, like what do you think it is in you that just had to keep going or has to keep going because I would imagine a lot of people would be absolutely terrified to see and hear those things and then feel as if I am also in this race. I am living with type one diabetes. I'm rationing my food and water. I have another five, six days to go. 
a lot of people in that position would probably think, oh, I'm out of here. I'm not risking this. Why do you think there was, for you, like not an option to stop? That's, I just, there's just, I, there was never that option. Uh, so, so a couple of things. I, I mean, before diabetes, I, you know, I'm, I, I've always been quite stubborn and, when, and determined. <laughs> um, I think diabetes has made me into this really, I mean, I'm not, when it comes to things like that, I'm really mentally tough. Like I'm hard on myself. I'm hard on myself anyway, when it comes to training. And that's one of my weaknesses. I need to, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning to train smarter. I'm learning to pay more attention to the recovery. I'm learning, you know, that the important things are things like sleep, what you do when you're not training, what you do, uh, you know, to recover from the training. And that, and that is an ongoing process for me. And it's something that I'm very, that I acknowledge and I'm very, very aware of. However, I think diabetes has made me into this just like, I just can't let it stop me. Um, there's, you know, there's always the things that, you know, make us fearful and, and I quite like rising against that. And then the the high that you get and the natural endorphins and the, you know, the, uh, I mean, yes, it, it becomes, I don't know if it's a, an addiction or an obsession or whether it's healthy or unhealthy. I'm not, I, I can't say, but, you know, I don't, it's all measured, measured decisions. And, at, you know, my plan was, I got, so when I got back to camp on the second day, I did go and have a full check over. I was kind of like thinking, I just need to make sure I'm okay. And at that point, I kind of thought, if something flags up, where it's stupid to continue, then I, then I won't. So I did, I do remember having that kind of measured kind of approach to that evening. I took, I took on some extra water that evening as well, because I was so scared about not drinking enough. So I took a time penalty for that. You could do that twice through the week and then you got disqualified the third time. So I took an extra liter and a half of water. Um, we get given six and a half liters once we get back to camp and that has to get us to the first checkpoint the next day. So that sounds like quite a lot, but it's actually, by the time you've taken your recovery shake, you've soaked your food in water and you sit to wear water and you filled your two water bottles up for the next start of the next day, it's gone. Like we didn't wash. Uh, the You know, I took some, it, sa- it sounds horrendous now, and, but I took some like dry wipes that were really lightweight um, that I mixed with water that I literally kind of like just uh, a splash of water and they became quite foamy so I could like literally like just do like the bare essentials I'm sure it doesn't take much imagination uh but um <laughs> that was the, uh, that was the only that was the only bit and brushing my teeth that was the only bit of self-care that um that we did really like uh I did get out my running clothes I did take some recovery leggings but the coldest it got overnight was 28 degrees I mean I was literally sleeping in my crop top and pants um we got hit with um three quite bad sandstorms on the first three nights so it was a case of kind of bunkering down and uh, getting under the sleeping bag but like other than that i wouldn't have needed a sleeping bag like it was just the temperatures were insane and suddenly things like you know smelling like roses and uh having you know clean nails it just it didn't ma- none of that mattered none of that mattered and it and the most amazing thing that I've taken from the week is um, this kind of clarity about what's important and what's not important. And um, 
it was a real lesson in endurance of not only the mind and the body, but also how to survive, uh, how to make water last, how to make the best use of it possible, how to make the best use of the food possible, everything that you've got around you. How can you maximize it to its absolute uh potential potential i don't know if that really makes sense but anyway but but make the most of what you've got uh to survive and and it, i just took so many lessons away from it um that you know that you can carry forward in 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 any war in any sphere of kind of um normal life really i've become much more streamlined in my diabetes in the fact that you know, traveling, I don't know about you guys, um, but traveling can be quite stressful with diabetes. As in like, you know, have you got, can you get your hands on the right stuff when you're over where you are? Are you better just to take it all with you as far as like gels and dextrose and glucose and orange juice and keeping the insulin cool and then having backup insulin and how many backup pods do you take and your insulin pump charger and your sensors and your backup sensors. And I mean, it's insane. And before, like, you know, people take the piss out of me because I travel with so much stuff. I've always got the biggest bag and I've always got the heaviest bag and I'm always paying sodding extra baggage allowance at the airports. Uh, but I think that, I think that, that, that that's the challenges that, come, you know, they're the day-to-day challenges that come with diabetes, right? And so, you know, finding a way to a streamline all of that and then and then also keeping you know finding a really effective ways of keeping the te- the insulin at the right temperature has i i've carried that like obviously i'm going to carry that forwards into um into everything so what i've learned from my whole journey and from that week in the desert has just been has just been incredible so i think we've gone slightly off topic but there was that you know when you're sat there and you're weighing it all up at no point did i go i'm don't think i should finish this I did go, I'm just going to double check. It's okay for me to can, to carry on. As in, if all my, you know, if all the signs and all the measurables are okay, then there's no way I'm stopping. And and that's that was the kind of situation I was in. Mm. What you were touching on about, like, the lessons that you've got or the lessons you've learned and how you feel as a result of the week that you've had, what I kind of look at it, it's like, involuntary challenge and voluntary challenge and it's almost as if and i and i think about this all the time and you might be similar where when you put yourself through a challenge voluntarily that that you don't have to do nobody's telling you to do it like you're not forced to do it but when you put yourself physically and mentally through something voluntarily and then you come out of it the other side and you learn these lessons that you can't really learn through anything else. The involuntary challenge in your life that inevitably comes up that's completely out of your control can seem easier or, as you say yourself, can seem more streamlined. So is there an element of that where you, I know we're jumping ahead, but when you finish or finish or cross the finish line, I would imagine in your head, Charlotte, you were probably thinking, there's probably nothing in my life that will come close to this involuntarily or voluntarily that will test me as much physically or mentally. That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. 
But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list.